I know there's a sign. I, I don't know if anybody abides by the sign. If you're the person who made the sign, I, I, I don't mean to offend you at all. Um, I, I need to wet my whistle every now and then, and I like coffee. And so I'm going to have my coffee here. And, um, you know, whenever you go to a new church, uh, everybody has their assumptions and their expectations. And it's kind of like a dance where you get to figure out, oh, what, what's meaningful to you? What, what's meaningful to you? And uh, just bottom line, coffee is a meaningful thing to me. I love it. Um, I know uh, that may come as a shock to you. I used to be a barista uh, for a season, and I love coffee. So if I ever have coffee up here, that's why. If you're offended by that, just come straight to me. You know, practice that Matthew 18 sort of, like, if you have an offense with your brother, come talk to me. I will try to win you over to the dark side of coffee. So there we are. Uh, So this morning, uh, we are starting on a brand new series. Uh, I like to think in series, and so you'll get the hang of that. Uh, We're taking the next long while to go through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, We're going into a journey on the Gospel of Matthew. If you're new to church or you're new to reading the Bible, uh, it took a a while for God to do this, but he inspired ordinary people like you and me to write down his word. And that inspiration led to the collection of of 66 pieces of writing that make up the Bible that we hold in our hands, physical or digital. Uh, Now, for today, we're not going to go into all the different kinds of writings that are used in Scripture. That's for another time. But enough to say that a good portion of the Bible has stories. It, It tells stories of people and how they interacted with God with each other, and how from the start, God loves humanity. And from the very beginning, he had a vision for how he was going to one day set all the wrong things back to right. For me, even though I was raised in church and brought up through the youth group, I served on the worship team since I was 12, Uh, You can do the math later. Uh, I even knew a lot of answers to the questions that were asked of me in Sunday school or in youth group. But it wasn't until after I graduated high school that I actually sat down to read the Bible without some ulterior motive to it. Uh, What happened was a representative from the Gideons came to our church and gave a presentation and Uh, that inspired me to take one of those old Gideon's Testaments that uh, I received in high school because of them passing it out and all, um, and actually start reading the Bible for myself. My mission was to find out if Jesus, the Jesus that I had grown up believing in, actually matched the Jesus that I met in those pages of that little Testament. So on my breaks, when I was working at Connects Auto Parts, I would sit on the hood of my 92 Ford Taurus, horrible car, Uh, and I I would open up my Gideon's Testament and read, and I was blown away by what I read. 
so much so that I wanted to read more and more. And it was like this God that I had heard about all my life finally started to become real to me. And for me, it all started with Matthew, which is why I'm excited to share the Gospel of Matthew with you all in these coming months. My hope is that along this journey, that Jesus would become real to us and that we would experience who Jesus is and what he's like and that we would come to know and understand God and his worldview, not just my worldview, not just yours, but his worldview and that through this time we would be inspired to share that experience of Jesus with others. Our new series is going to be called The King of the Kingdom, The King of the Kingdom. It's going to take us from the birth of Jesus all the way to when he begins his preaching ministry in Galilee, four chapters, lightning speed. Uh, And the title for today's message is, Who is this King? Who is this King? Our passage is going to be Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And the big idea that we're going to be exploring today is that Jesus saves in all our life. Jesus saves in all our life. But before we dig into all that, I want to share a story. Uh, two Mays, months of Mays ago, uh, in the May of 2020, I should say it that way, uh, I was working half-time at an appliance parts distributor in Vancouver, Washington, called W.L. May Company. I love that place. I worked the front counter, which means that I got to look up parts, sometimes on a computer, sometimes on microfish. Oh, yeah, that was my favorite. Um, But I I would get to look up parts of these amazing machines. Uh, And most of the time, I would get to work with walk-in retail customers, sometimes with our accounts. Um, But if a customer had an issue with a part, um, I got to handle the situation. Uh, This one day, I was doing my thing. I was taking calls. I was looking at parts. And this guy comes in, and he wants to do a return. No big deal. I got this. It, you know, I've done this a hundred times at least. You know, it may have been the wrong part. It may have been faulty. I can't remember, so don't ask me. But this guy... Uh, It turns out, like most parts place, he was pretty irate. Uh, He was not too happy about his situation. He was what I would call a real piece of work. Um, And, I mean, he was getting worked up over it all. And so I got to handle the situation. We found him the right part. I went and got it. We were in this massively huge warehouse, and I, I ran back. It took me a while to actually go to the location and find it, and I got back and I was writing up the order and I discovered that his last name was Walls. <laughs> That's my last name. And so I, I just, suddenly there was a shift in the conversation. And what started as a really negative experience, I, I had a crummy attitude, y'all. I just, I was not, it was an unsanctified moment for me. I was just like, this guy, I was, words flying around in my head. But what started as negative actually turned into this exciting moment where I got to meet somebody who I didn't know from Adam, 
who was a part of my family, who had the same last name of me. Uh, it turned out that uh, he knew a lot about our family history, and so he shared some major events in our family's background and legacy, and all of that inspired me to go and look up for myself my family origins and see what I might find. How, show of hands, how many of you have looked into genealogies before for yourself? Okay, good. About two-thirds. Awesome. Cool. So I'm talking to youth this morning. Um, uh, I'm talking to everybody, but here we go. So information you find uh, in these genealogies are people's names. Oftentimes, you know, where they lived, when they were alive, their occupation. You might find a couple of anecdotes about their life if they did something specifically spectacular um, in their life or something impressive. Maybe there's a family motto that went along with your family. All of those details work together to form a genealogy. Um, and they all work together to thread together a character about each generation and each family. You know, when we look at our past, we can get an idea of what has brought us to today. Both the good and the not so good. Knowing our past helps us know how to celebrate what has been all the while reaching for what lies ahead. So the Gospel of Matthew is this story about Jesus of Nazareth, a traveling rabbi from first century Palestine that went around his country with his disciples preaching what he called the good news of the kingdom of heaven that the kingdom of heaven was at hand and he performed all kinds of signs and wonders among the people. Through Jesus' ministry, God showed up in ways that the people hadn't ever experienced before and it made the people wonder. You know, God promised through all, all throughout the scriptures that one day he would send a deliverer who would save us and uh, bring us freedom. Could this Jesus be the one? Could Jesus be the Savior King that they had been waiting for? The Jewish people had been waiting for and praying for rescue from the Roman occupation of their land and restoration to their place among the nations. And so the title that they gave this individual was Anointed King. In Hebrew, it's the word Messiah. In Greek, it's the word Christ. The bottom line is that God had promised hope to those without hope. And it's in those places of hopelessness that God wants to step right into your story and reveal his goodness for you and for me. Who is this king? The writer of the Gospel of Matthew believes that it's Jesus. And Jesus saves in all our life. So, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. If you have a physical Bible, uh, find the blank page about two-thirds of the way through, and then turn left one page, and you should be there. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation this morning. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. 
Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoram. Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Ammon. Ammon was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jehoiachin and his brothers, born at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the Babylonian exile, Jehoiachin was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud. Abiud was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Akim. Akim was the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Matan. Matan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Messiah. All those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. <clears throat> Woo! Here we go. The first thing we learn about who this king is is that this king is the deliverer who was promised. He is the deliverer who was promised. Did you catch that there were three sets of 14 generations? So if we were to add all those up, if we were to count the years from Abraham to when Jesus was born, we would arrive at almost 1,800 years between the two individuals. Now, not all of those people on that list lived to be 100. Not all of them lived to be even over 100, which means that there were actually more generations than the 42 mentioned. So does that mean that Matthew is trying to pull one over on us? I mean, when I think of a genealogy, I think of a direct line of descent. I am the son of Stan. Stan is the son of Lloyd, and I don't know my great-grandpa's name, but, um, and beyond. But the point is, is that we think just in terms of direct, we think linear. What is going on here? Our culture is based on a Greco-Roman Western mindset that looks at information in a linear way. You know, A to B to C to D, just on down the line. You know, if I go one, two, three, 
I would think that the next one would be four. You know, that kind of thing. Um, but the culture that Matthew was speaking into was an Eastern culture, which means that the genealogy looked different and it meant something kind of different than what we would expect today. And so this writer was trying to tell us a message through this genealogy. He was trying to get a point across. Um, And so this writer is telling us something through this list of names that connects Jesus to Abraham and David. So let's look at a few Bible prophecies to see why uh, he's doing that. Uh, Go ahead and just take the scripture address down. I'm going to fly through these. Um, I had planned to have a PowerPoint, but um, I did not get that to Richard in time. So uh, the first is in Genesis 3.15. God is speaking to the serpent that deceived Adam and Eve in the garden. And he says to the serpent, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. At that place where everything went wrong, God already had a plan of how he was going to rescue humanity from sin and death. A future son of the woman would one day crush the deceiver's authority and be stricken and afflicted all to bring us freedom and healing. That's echoed in Isaiah chapter 53 verses 4 through 5. Isaiah 53, 4 through 5, where it says, Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Next, let's take a look at God's initial promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, uh, verses 2 through 3, that says, uh, God speaking to Abraham says, I will make you, Abraham, into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Did you catch that? God had a plan for blessing all the families on the earth through Abraham. He didn't want to harm all the families on earth. He wanted to bless the families on earth. Now here's a promise that God made to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I believe, I don't have it written down here. I believe it's verse 16. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's in chapter 7 somewhere. Now, God's making a promise to David, uh, and he says, Your house, David, your house is, and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. Now, that's a pretty bold statement that God is making. When you think about how in the history of the world, kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Even if a nation lasts for a long time, 
and has a dynasty of kings, they eventually die out and are replaced by another dynasty. But this dynasty is supposed to continue for all time. How's God going to make that one come through? Let's find out. Let's fill this picture out a little bit further. The prophet Jeremiah spoke during the time when the nation of Judah was just about to be exiled to Babylon and overthrown by them. But the promise-making and promise-keeping God of Israel gave this word of hope when all seemed hopeless. In Jeremiah 23, 5 through 8, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. Then they shall dwell in their own land. There was going to come a day when God was going to work a salvation greater than when he delivered them from slavery in Egypt. But not only that, God was going to keep his promise to David and would raise up out of the family of David a king who would save the people out of their place of brokenness and oppression and into a place of promise. One that is characterized by God and his goodness. So Abraham, David, and the exile are like three hinge points in this genealogy. And they kind of serve as like a skeleton frame of three sets of 14 generations. Which makes me wonder, why 14? What's significant about the number 14? I'm glad you asked. I wonder these things. Matthew is trying to get a message across through this genealogy, right? He wants us to know uh, that he is convinced that Jesus of Nazareth is Jeremiah's righteous branch from King David's line. That's why he lists the family ties and he goes a step further. And you know, I'm going to scare some of you a little bit. Numbers in the Bible are kind of significant. Uh, But real talk, things get pretty scary when we use those numbers to try to predict the end of the world. So we're not going there this morning, but numbers are significant. And so the first time that the number 14 gets mentioned in Scripture is in Exodus chapter 12, verse 6, when the Lord is giving Moses the instruction for the Passover. And when you're interpreting... Scripture, one of the first like ground level principles that you use is what's called the first mentioned principle, which means that whenever it first gets mentioned, that's where, you know, that's what starts its meaning. And so then you kind of build your theology of that idea off of that thing. And so using that principle, the number 14 is the number of Passover. Passover was a defining moment that 
remembered and called the people to remember how God delivered the Israelites with a mighty hand and outstretched arm from Egypt. The number 14 is also the sum total number value. This is getting kind of nerdy, but the sum total value of David's name. And with, if that was not enough to be cool, uh, the number three in Scripture is the number of divinity. And so all together, we have these three sets of 14 generations. And I would submit to you today that maybe beyond just the literal family ties between Abraham, David, and Jesus, that the writer is driving the point home even further through numbers that Jesus is the anointed king, the Messiah. And that the king is the deliverer who was promised. Throughout all these generations, according to God's divine plan of salvation, Jesus saves in all our life. And as our God-given Savior, that is possible first and foremost because he is a descendant of David from among God's people. So who is this king? In the genealogy that Matthew records, we also learn that this king is a person we can relate to. This king is a person we can relate to. In the Eastern style of genealogy telling, uh, it's a reference to people of notable character, the people you want to mention. It's kind of like when you're in a conversation with someone and they make just the passing comment saying, oh, by the way, I'm related to George Washington. Or, oh, I'm related to Abraham Lincoln. And let's say that's true. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say they did their genealogical research and true enough, best of circumstances, they're related to them. What are they really trying to say? They're saying, hey, remember that founding father over there? I'm related to him. I'm pretty great too. But Matthew is doing more than just bragging on Jesus and his connection to these folks. Genealogies tell us where a person came from, what type of family they had, what really characterized these people, and ultimately what character that person themselves had. So in Jesus' genealogy, we expect to hear names like Abraham, David, Solomon, Hezekiah, and Josiah, heroes of the faith. Even though they failed in some of the areas of their life, their character was celebrated and overall good. Faith, devotion, wisdom, conviction, intimacy with God, all good things, all good qualities. But interwoven throughout all these generations are also people of a bad reputation. People you think, wow, should we really mention them? Maybe we should just keep that hidden in the family tree. Maybe we shouldn't talk about that person. Let's just skip over their name in, when we tell this story. Maybe we should just keep the good and overlook the bad. I mean, we are talking about the Savior of the world after all, are we not? Shouldn't we just highlight the good, for example? Now, why? When Matthew bring up Tamar, who dressed up like a prostitute when Judah lied and failed to give his youngest son, Shelah, to her in marriage. Why would 
Matthew mentioned Rahab, who actually was a prostitute in a sketchy situation in Jericho, who was saved by some Israelite men who took shelter in her home so they could conquer the city. Something a little shady going on there, but we don't talk about that. Why would we mention Rehoboam, whose leadership literally split the kingdom? Why, why mention Jehoiachin, who was so wicked, he only got to rule for three months before God sent the people to Babylon and sacked Jerusalem and into exile? What is Matthew doing? I believe we get to see all of these mentions of broken, flawed people for two reasons. The first is that in the Old Testament, even though all these people had their failures, and we get to see all their failures on display, we get a glimpse of God's plan for redemption with the way their stories started, well, well, in that situation, started hopeless, but it didn't stay there. God brought hope to their situation. Tamar finally got her kinsman redeemer through Judah. It's not the way it should have been, but it still happened. Rahab experienced salvation because of her faith in the God of Israel, and so she was spared and eventually became... Catch this, the great-great-grandma of King David. (laughs) That's incredible. One of the greatest stories of a kinsman redeemer comes from the book of Ruth, where the man Boaz, who's mentioned in the genealogy, he redeems Ruth and her mother-in-law Naomi out of their poverty and hopeless situation and restores them to full members of the community. Rehoboam did split the kingdom. He had to own that. But after the split of the kingdom, he turned out to be an okay king. He wasn't terrible. There were definitely some kings who were a lot more wicked than he was. And he turned out okay. And Jehoiachin was so wicked. And there's no getting around that. But God still showed him mercy on account of David by letting him live. He could have, I mean, there were some kings who just got annihilated. It was terrible. Read in the history sometime. It's amazing. But uh, did I just say that? I did. I'm sorry. I get excited at, at the histories of the kings because it's like a war story. It's like a war movie. And it's like, oh, hey, Ooh, what's going on? Okay. Uh, but, but God let him live. And so even in the hardest and darkest times, even in the moments that we would rather hide because we're ashamed of them. Even in our failings, God is right there with us, working his story of salvation into our story. The truth that our anointed king is a person we can relate to is the truth that Jesus came from an earthly family that was broken and had their flaws but also revealed God's love and mercy through how their stories were redeemed. Hebrews 4:15 through 16 says this about Jesus. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do. 
yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. So let me ask you, as the worship team comes up, where do you need his grace in your life right now? What are the parts of your story that the enemy of your soul tries to use against you to shame you and tear you down? Even though it's hard sometimes to believe that God could love us in the first place, let alone at our worst, let me encourage you. God is that good. His grace is enough. At the cross, He showed us just how much He loves you, me, and everybody when He died for our sins. Jesus wants a relationship with you and wants you to experience that great salvation in all points of your life. Jesus saves in all our life. Even in the places we want to hide. He wants to meet you in those places. You don't have to clean yourself up before you come to him. He wants to meet you right where you're at. Why? Because he loves you. And he's crazy about you and wants you to live life to the full. That's how good our God is. He meets us at our worst and he has the power to redeem us and bring us to the place of experiencing full life in him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your great grace to us. Jesus, we recognize your infinite worth. We recognize the place the places that we fail you. And we thank you, God, for your mercy and your kindness towards us that leads us to repentance. So right now, God, we boldly approach your throne of grace. We ask that we would get to experience that grace fresh this morning. For all of my friends and family here, God, I pray that you would come and move in their heart and in their life. God, that they would know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you love them. God, help us experience your love afresh this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.